Is that loud enough? Okay, welcome to everybody to Grand Rounds today, and I'd also like to welcome our listeners from um, off-site who are watching online. And um, it's a real pleasure today to introduce Dr. Brent Berwin, who is an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. And I'm actually surprised I've never introduced you before, Brent. Brent and I came to Dartmouth almost within a week of each other, about 11 years ago. And uh, Brent, um, I, looking back through his CV, I wanted to see, you know, what kind of interesting information can we bring out about Brent, because we don't often have this opportunity. But I just wanted to quote Brent's first research project was study of squawfish in the Columbia River Gorge. So from there, that was working for the Oregon Department of T Fish and Wildlife. So research has changed quite a bit. And when, when Brent came to Dartmouth, he was uh, working with scavenger receptors, and you'll see still is. And um, he did did his graduate work at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he got his PhD, and from there went to Duke um, and uh, brought his work here to look at scavenger receptors, and that's taken him in many directions. His lab has a focus on research on um, phagocytic cells and uh, basically how cells phagocytose bacteria, and as you'll see today, there's uh, an extension of this work to uh, ovarian cancer and understanding how phagocytes work in ovarian cancer and he's going to, I believe, show a lot of the biology surrounding um, what brings these cells into the tumor microenvironment. Um, Brent has had funding from the NIH, from the, N, from, um, the NCI, and also uh, from the American Cancer Society. He's also the Associate Director of Education, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And um, I uh, welcome all of you to listen to Brent's talk. Thank you. Does that work? All righty. Thank you, Joe Turk. It's been a good 11 years. I feel like this is some sort of anniversary or something. <laughs> so yeah, the two of us came here uh, late 2004, along with a third guy, Jose Cornejo, who I'll mention here. And uh, it, it's been a good ride. So I'm going to tell you a little bit today uh, about our work on ovarian statement. Um, um, I don't have that's honestly true. I kind of wish I did. Um, no off-label uh, uses of products, and I wish I were receiving direct payments. I'm not. So the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, we're going to talk about uh, leukocytes, about myeloid cells in ovarian cancer today. And we're going to hit on the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the manifestation of ovarian cancer, um, not too surprisingly, it starts in the ovaries. It's an epithelial cell cancer and, and sloughs off the ovaries. Actually, in, in this age, we're starting to find out that what we think is ovarian cancer may involve some fallopian cancer as well. I think that's something that's being explored uh, currently. But early on, uh, starts in the ovaries, sloughs off, and really of interest to us, in the early stages, um, it stays within the peritoneum. And so for this disease, early in the disease, we essentially get to play inside of a bag. That's very attractive to us when we're thinking about uh, therapies. Uh, it's a very contained area that we can play in. And I'll contrast that with something like melanoma that Mary Jo Turk works in, where when that starts metastasizing all over, uh, you've got a lot of distal metastases, and you know, <laughs> Lord knows where they're popping up. So we get to work uh, in a contained area at least until uh, a later stage of the disease. 
Interestingly enough, uh, it metastasized the omentum fairly quickly, um, something that's not well understood, uh, but we find it a bit fascinating. And it will metastasize to the peritoneal wall and to the organs inside of the peritoneum, okay? One of the things that comes along with it is ascites. So there is a large influx of uh, myeloid cells uh, along with the, the fluid um, and the uh, non-adherent cancer cells that are containing the ascites. And um, this is an end stage. Uh, I'm not a pathologist, but this is not good. Um, but you can see all of the deposition within the peritoneum from an ovarian cancer. So obviously, bad gynecologic cancer, it's one of the leading causes of cancer-related deaths. Um, one of the reasons that uh, we have not been terribly successful at combating this cancer is we don't catch it very well. So it's a very slow-growing cancer. Uh, it's not picked up well early on. It's hard to detect, and it's difficult to treat. And this probably ha partly has to do with the cancer and partly has to do with we're catching it a little bit later in the game, and I'll show you a stat for that in just a second. Standard treatment is uh, debulking and chemotherapy, usually with a, a platinum-based drug, and five-year survival is fairly lousy, okay? Not one of the diseases that you want to have. So here's uh, a little bit about the survival rate and diagnosis. Um, as you can see, uh, this is uh, ending in 2005, but the vast majority of people are already get, are getting caught when the cancer is already starting to spread, okay? Bad sign. If we can catch it earlier, uh, inevitably we'll do better about this. Five-year survival at this point, uh, 28%. So not real good on that respect, okay? So once again, poor diagnostics, not real good treatments yet, um, and we're still working on, on new treatments. We work a lot with a mirroring model of ovarian cancer. So here's the ID8 ovarian tumor model. It comes in a couple of different flavors, and I, I mentioned uh, Jose Cornejo a minute ago. So he added a couple of genes to the original ID8, and that can speed up the progression of the cancer. So we're gonna use a couple of different flavors of this ID8. It's a syngenic model of ovarian cancer in mice. It's in the black six background, and it replicates the human disease really well as a transplantable cancer, okay? It's slow growing. You get the metastases of the deposition on the peritoneal wall, and I'll show you some pictures of that. You get the accumulation of ascites, so that's what you're seeing here. Here's our normal healthy mouse, and this is a mouse now that has the ovarian cancer in the peritoneum. It's very distinctive. Uh, really interesting to us, within the ascites, there's a huge recruitment of leukocytes, and really, uh, you know, anecdotally, this is how we got into the game. We had already been playing in cancer some, but we're macrophage enthusiasts. And when we found out that in this model you can get somewhere on the upwards of 10 to the 7th macrophages from ovarian cancer, we thought this was a really neat model to play with and, and a neat uh, tumor system. Okay? This is true in the human disease as well. So this is an intentionally complicated slide um, with all sorts of arrows pointing all over the tumor and microenvironment. Um, do not try to follow these arrows. Really what I want to point out to you here is that there are a bunch of different myeloid cells, and we'll talk a little bit about the relationship between them, uh, that are present in the microenvironment. And this is true for a lot of tumors. So um, those of you who are studying other types of tumors are probably inevitably interested in these as well. Um, they're variably called and have variable roles in terms of dendritic cells, macrophages, myeloid duress suppressor cells, um, and there's a number of other names for these cells as well, okay? Almost all of these cell types, uh, certainly in ovarian cancer and other types of cancer as well, actually support tumor progression. It's a little bit counterintuitive from the role that we think about in terms of infection and fighting off some of the other diseases, but in cancer it actually flips it over and now these cells actually help the tumors to progress. 
So these tumors, uh, 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 these leukocytes within the tumors uh, actually help to create the neovasculature. They're good for tissue remodeling, which macrophages in particular are known for as well. Um, they aid metastasis, and they, and they form a tolerogenic environment. They will actually uh, diminish the T cell responses, and I'll show you some evidence for that. When we talk about sort of the subsets that we see, uh, we see a lot of literature on both tumor-associated macrophages and myeloid suppressor cells. And uh, I guess in our opinion, certainly from this and from others, is that really we're talking about shades of gray here. And I'll show you one of the reasons that we think about this. So here's a naive mouse, peritoneal lavage, um, classical mouse markers. We're looking at GFP. We've got this nice mouse model. It's called a mafia mouse. Expresses GFP under the CD115 promoter. Pretty good macrophage marker. And sure enough, here's F480. And here's our double positive cell population on a fax plot. Uh, these are not CD11C positive. And if we put a tumor into these mice, um, we shift it over. And the thing that you'll notice here is now when we collect it from the ascites, they become CD11B, CD11C double positive, And we lose that singular population that we saw up here. So in essence, whatever we want to call these, they are replacing the naive perineal macrophages. Okay. The gold standard for a myeloid-derived suppressor cell is really in its activity, its suppressive activity. It should be able to suppress a T cell response. And this is the basis for how we set up a bunch of these assays. So we can take splenocytes or purified T cells, mix them uh, in, a, in a tube or a dish with purified uh, 11C positive. We can purify these other ways. It could be F4A, it could be 11B, whatever. Choose your favorite marker. But we isolate the leukocytes out of tumor or a naive mouse. Um, we can get it from different sort, sites of anatomy. And we're going to stimulate these T cells, either with CD3 or PMA, um, and ask how well do these leukocytes that we added in now suppress the T cell activation. And we can measure T cell activation a couple of different ways. We can measure it by CFSE dilution. Um, diminishing fluorescence indicates the, the T cell division. And really easy, we can just measure interferon gamma that's released by the T cells within this assay. Okay? And this is what we see. Okay? So if we just take our uh, uh, splenocytes and stimulate them, we get oodles of interferon gamma. Uh, if we add tumor CD11C uh, positive cells to this, we now absolutely crush this T cell response. They're very, very suppressive. And if we take naive CD11C that aren't taken from a tumor, we still get the T cell activation. Okay, So there's something that's uh, particularly suppressive about these tumor-associated uh, uh, cells. And, and really, that's, that's the root of their uh, myeloid-derived suppressor cell uh, nomenclature, really. So they're suppressive. When we saw this, we got into the MDSC game. Um, and one of the canonical uh, uh, signatures of an MDSC is that expresses a, a molecule called arginase. And although it's still not really well understood how arginase contributes to this uh, T cell suppression, um, there's a couple of hypotheses I'll put down here. Um, for a lot of systems, and it's not necessarily all systems, if you block that arginase activity in the myeloid cells, you will now resuscitate the T cell activity. Okay? It seems to be arginase dependent. A couple of the hypotheses are that T cells seem to be very sensitive to arginine levels, and if you, maybe if we deplete, if the MDSCs deplete the arginine in the, in the area, we now lose the T cell response. Um, there's some papers that, uh, that the arginase actually drives nitrosylation of the T cell receptor, and so the T cell can't respond. Um, and another paper by the Ochoa group that uh, you know it dysregulates the the zeta chain of the TCR. Um, honestly, we don't think it's any of these three reasons, but we also don't have a particularly uh, insightful, specific reason why this arginase uh, contributes so well. 
That said, we can play uh, the same party game as lots of other people, and it, and it does play out. It is a consistent sort of thing. So this is what I showed you just a second ago in terms of T-cell responses, if we mix our T-cells with these suppressive leukocytes. Um, this laser point is a little wonky, but uh, in those black bars, we're getting good T-cell responses when we stimulate the T-cells. Uh, if we add the tumor CD11C cells, we crush that response. And now if we pretreat uh, the myeloid cells with a arginase inhibitor, Nornoha, we can now resuscitate this, okay? And a couple of different inhibitors that you can use. And in this system, it seems to be very arginase dependent. Um, this is actually contrasts with a couple of other systems. So I think Bill Green, for instance, is studying a system now where he sees suppression that's uh, mediated perhaps by INOS rather than arginase. So there seems to be a couple of systems that uh, uh, can do this. Interestingly, arginase and INOS both metabolize arginine. Um, and once again, I don't think it's particularly well understood exactly how this plays out. In our case, arginase seems to be the key to this. So what, what do these myeloid suppressor cells do? Well, they're a heterogeneous population of, of sort of monocytic cells. And I'll, I'll note that there are granulocytic um, MDSCs as well seem to be related to the neutrophil lineage. Um, in our system, in, in, in ovarian cancer, we predominantly see the monocytic variety, um, and we don't see any effect, uh, suppressive effect, appreciable suppressive effect from the granulocytic side. So those are the ones that we're studying uh, in this context. And once again, in other systems, you will see reports that the granulocytic ones may be very important. Um, I'm not going to go into the crazy uh, surface expression of markers, but I'll talk about a few of them as we go on, because help, they help us break it into uh, functional subsets. But if anybody likes cell surface markers, that's what we're looking at. So back to the, are these sort of shades of gray? Um, in our opinion, these come in a bunch of different flavors, and we think that they're related to each other. So uh, you'll see in the literature tumor-associated macrophages. You'll see these MDSCs uh, described as immature dendritic cells. Some people will describe them as type 2 monocytes. Uh, Jose liked to call them vascular leukocytes. Um, we see a, a variety of uh, nomenclature for these cells. We would argue that basically uh, we are in shades of gray. Uh, M2 macrophages probably fall under this guise as well. So really the, the moral that we take home from this, at least until somebody can show us a transcription factor that'll differentiate some of these uh, functionally, they're all immunosuppressive within this tumor microenvironment. They're all monocyte-derived cells recluded to this inflammatory site. They've got a bunch of different names, and uh, you know we're not really going to quibble about it. Our opinion is that they probably represent a, a continuum of the myeloid uh, uh, derivation. And here I'm showing you uh, the human uh, ovarian ascites. And so, once again, these are CD11C positive cells. I'm not doing a good job with this laser pointer. Is there, oh, thank you. There we go. 11C, here they are. And I'll talk a little bit about, but they're also scavenger receptor A positive, which turns out to be a really neat marker for us. Um, and what you can see up here is the prevalence of them up here as well. So CD45 positive cells, as you might expect from the myeloid origin. Um, and, and there's a lot of them. This is, this is not a diminishing population. Okay, so really the root of the talk today is, uh, I'll get to the ugly in just a second, but here's the good and the bad. Uh, I guess the bad are over here in terms of these um, MDSCs that are now recruited, the tumor microenvironment, and we're trying to see if we can flop these over in the forces of good. So these are normally suppressing the T cells, and I'll show you that they have a couple of other roles as well. Um, what can we do now to block uh, their effect on the T cell microenvironment? How can we drive the T cells to fight the cancer? So I'm going to talk about three vignettes today. 
Um, and uh, you know, I'm willing. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, jump in if you've got any, and obviously we can take questions at the end as well. So our initial uh, attempt was sort of a brute force attempt. We want to know what happens if we just take these MDSCs out of play in this mouse model of ovarian cancer, and then we start refining our story a little bit. Okay. What happens if we start blocking recruitment of these? Can we keep them out? And now getting even more specific, what are the mechanisms by which uh, they're enforcing this immunosuppressive environment? <coughs> so here's the first one. Um, this was done by Pete Bach, one of the first graduate students in the lab. And uh, we have already had a love of scavenger receptors. And we know that scavenger receptors are actually a very nice marker for macrophages. And it turns out they're also a very nice marker for these MDSCs within the ovarian tumor microenvironment. Mm -hmm. He came up with a neat strategy to absolutely take these cells out of play. And I, I say it's brute force because we're going to deplete these cells. And so the way he did this is to use an anti-SRA antibody that is attached to a toxin, uh, Saporin. The trade name is ZAP, but that's unimportant. Um, and so we're, we're going to uh, intoxicate these cells and kill them. SRA turns out to be a really good marker. It both has good specificity for the cells we want to look at. It's endocytic, so it'll take up the toxin very nicely. It's got specificity to the tumor-associated leukocytes, and it's not expressed by the tumor, the tumor cells themselves. Okay? We're actually going after the leukocytes. So that's all the animation I've got, because that's about all I've got. Uh, it's going to attach to the cell. It's going to internalize that toxin, and it's going to kill it. And it worked out pretty well. So here you see SRA by F480 in a, uh, a, I guess, untreated peritoneum. And after the toxin, we lose that cellular population. Okay, so we're getting IP injections of this of this targeted toxin. Um, you see a very nice depletion of the SRA F4D positive cells here um, when compared to just putting the untargeted toxin in. So we need the targeting there to take the cellular population out. And it doesn't seem to have a big effect, uh, at least in some of the other distal sites that we looked at. So we're working pretty well within the bag of the peritoneum in this case. Um, uh, without comprehensively looking at the mouse, at least we weren't seeing differences in the spleen. Are those cells SRA positive throughout the mouse or just in the peritoneum? They're SRA positive throughout the mouse, although different subsets of macrophages will have uh, varying levels of SRA. Is it higher in the tumor? Um, the Higher than what? Than like a macrophage in the periphery. Oh, it, that's going to be variable. So um, splenic macrophages have SRA, um, but for instance, lung macrophages don't have a lot of SRA. They've got some other scavenger receptors that they predominantly use. So there is some anatomical variability. But in the tumor, is it higher than spleen? Uh, no, it should be fairly comparable. Other questions? Cool. So here's, here's how we tried to uh, leverage this. So we're going to challenge our mice with ID8 cells. In this case, they are GFP labeled. We're going to inject our targeted or, our targeted or untargeted uh, toxin uh, weekly IP uh, following the challenge. And we can measure a couple of outcomes along the way. So we can measure ascites accumulation as a function of body weight. You saw how big those mice get. Um, and we can assess both MDSC and tumor burden later in the game. Okay. And so this is what the graph looks like in terms of tumor progression. If all we do is uh, we're going to measure uh, increase in weight gain. Sorry about that y-axis. And here's Day's post-tumor challenge. If we uh, uh, do not target the toxin, we get our very characteristic curve in terms of weight gain for gain of ascites. That's a, a tumor burden. Um, and if we do target the toxin, we do a very good job of keeping that down, Okay, a, a very distinctive difference. 
if we analyze this at the end ex vivo, um, we uh, get what we, what we really wanted. We're depleting the CD11C positive cells, and that's seen here. The targeted toxin does a very good job of that. The untargeted, uh, not so much. Um, but the important part of this is the effect now on the actual tumor. So now we're dropping the ascites volume by virtue of taking out these leukocytes. Um, the total cellularity within the ascites is dropping. And really interesting to us, we're now also dropping uh, the ID8 burden within the ascites. So we're doing a good job of blocking tumor burden by taking out the leukocytes. Bill? I, I missed how you were doing the treatment. The question goes to whether this is a durable response or you have to keep treating it as soon as you do. You get reversion, so to speak. In this case, we're doing weekly. Um, you know, I, I can't actually speak to whether at some point we're getting an anti-idiotypic sort of response, but apparently what we were doing was good enough early on. Um, is that what you're asking? or we've done, we've done other regimens, if that's what you're asking. I just wondered if you stop treatment after the five hits there, whether down the road the curves are going to change again because you need a continuous... You do. You do. So there is these, these mice, and you, you see this here, uh, these mice are not cured. And if we stop the regimen, they will, they will come up again. Thank you. One of the really interesting things to us, and I'm going to come back to this a little bit later, is that depletion of leukocytes flip-flops the cytokine environment, okay? So a couple of the markers that we looked at are IL-10 and inter interferon gamma, which sort of represent opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of a suppressive cytokine and an inflammatory cytokine. So if we measure IL-10 uh, following just uh, toxin treatment, we have high levels of IL-10, as we would expect within the ovarian tumor microenvironment. So there's been some work done on this. So Weiping Zhu and uh, the Osterheim-Rosenberg lab have looked into this. This is not breaking news. This is what we expected. Um, the neat thing to us is that when we do our SRA zap uh, and deplete the leukocytes, we're now dropping that IL-10 substantially. And we see the flip-flop on that in terms of the pro-inflammatory cytokines. So interferon gamma here, uh, probably a representative of T-cell activity, um, now is coming up, okay? So now we're seeing a, a more inflammatory profile rather than a suppressive profile uh, following this leukocyte depletion. Is that in the serum or those measurements, or is that from the tumor? That's from the ascites liquid. Uh, uh, thank you to the IML for running Luminex for us. Um, long story short, uh, if you do this in rag mice, uh, we don't see an effective response. So it appears that you need uh, T cells, and I'll, I'll show you more evidence for that in a minute, but you need T cells in order to drive this anti-tumor response. So we think that the depletion of leukocytes, um, probably for a couple of reasons, but importantly, if we can re uh, restore that T cell response, now we can drive a, a protective um, T cell response. So really the, the take home out of this part one, which launched a bunch of these studies, is that we can effectively eliminate a bunch of these MDSCs uh, in vivo using this, this sort of brute force strategy, um, decreases the cells that we're targeting from the peritoneum of the mice. The really important part is this therapy reduces the tumor burden. So now we can talk about, uh, you know, can we combine an anti-leukocyte uh, therapy with even some conventional uh, anti-tumor strategies? And it was really a, an early proof of principle, um, uh, the ability to locally deplete leukocytes with the, uh, uh, you know, some therapeutic potential. Um, you know, we can talk about whether 
uh, depleting leukocytes in a person is really going to be a, a practical strategy. Chances are it's not. That's a hard way to go. Um, but this really drove us now into thinking about the actual mechanisms behind this and what can we target in this sort of system. So our next vignette is really how are these cells recruited and if we can block recruitment, which now is getting much more therapeutically applicable, uh, can, we get some, can we get some advantage from this? So what are the mechanism, mechanisms involved in recruiting leukocytes to the tumor? And from this, we already had some pre-existing insights. Um, one of these is that uh, CCR2 was known to be very important for macrophage uh, recruitment, even just to a naive peritoneum. So if you cause some inflammation in a peritoneum, CCR2 was already described to be important. And here you're seeing uh, a wild-type mouse versus a CCR2 knockout mouse. Uh, you inflame the perineum a little bit, and you get far fewer macrophages, not a lot of change in the neutrophils. Um, that's probably mostly IL-8-mediated. Um, and uh, you know, not a lot of other cells. These are the predominant cell types within the peritoneum. Okay? Within ovarian cancer itself, it was already known that CCL2, the cognate chemokine for CCR2, is highly expressed. Okay? So most abundant CC chemokine expressed in a, in a whole lot of patient ascites. Uh, you see elevated levels in the blood. Uh, ID8 cells, our mouse model, constitutively express CCL2, so that was good for us, uh, allowed us to leverage this system. And when we start looking for how much CCL2 we're looking at in the ID8 ascites, there's a lot of it, okay? And we think that's uh, largely produced by the tumor itself. So once again, uh, uh, this is going to mediate chemotaxis predominantly of these myeloid cells. Uh, it's the sole receptor for CCL2. Uh, uh, for CC CCR2 is the sole receptor for CCL2, also called MCP1, uh, if you're a fan of that. Um, uh, it's expressed by a variety of cells, and in this system, uh, uh, the CCR2 is expressed by a variety of cells, and here we think the CCL2 is largely uh, produced by the tumors. Okay. So uh, just a, a, a basically, I'll show you a, a one-time experiment. Actually, it was repeated, but uh, a one. Uh, experiment uh, testing this, and so all we're going to do here is compare wild-type versus CCR2 knockout mice for what happens if we put tumors into them. Does the loss of CCR2 uh, on the mouse side now block recruitment of these myeloid cells, and if so, and based on what we saw before, does this inhibit tumor progression? Okay. So if we measure, if we put tumors into both wild-type and CCR2 knockout mice, these are on the black six background, and, and just look at a week later, we're already seeing a deficit in the number of the leukocytes that are being recruited into the tumor microenvironment. If we wait uh, quite a bit longer, so this is day 42 now in the tumor progression, we're getting later into uh, tumor progression, we get a nice differential. So we're seeing somewhere in the order of about a third as many uh, F480 or CD11B positive cells in. This loss of CCR2 is doing a good job of, in essence, the, the leukocytes are not being able to be recruited to this tumor environment. The neat thing about this is, once again, and consistent with the results that we saw before, is that the loss of the CCR2 and the, the loss of this myeloid recruitment now has an impact on the actual tumor. So here we're measuring the number of tumor cells within the microenvironment within wild-type and CCR2 knockout mice. Uh, we're seeing differences there with a decrease in the actual uh, tumor cellularity. And we've got a, a, a neat technique where we can actually take off the peritoneal wall and look for the, the solid tumor deposition, okay? And so here you're seeing what happens if we use an untargeted toxin versus a targeted toxin uh, with uh, basically the, the fluorescence of the labeled uh, tumor cells on, on the peritoneal wall. So it's not absolutely protective, but you can see that there is a large differential here between uh, deposition when we use the targeted immunotoxin. 
one of the neat things that kind of happened out of this is, and you know, it's always nice to see that someone else is following up on some of the stuff that you're doing. So this is a paper that came out maybe two years ago from the Lenahan Lab, um, and now they're starting to look at this in other tumor types. So CCR2 is not necessarily the recruitment factor, or CCL2, I guess, uh, for monocytes to all parts of anatomy, but it, it does work for uh, certainly other organs and other distal sites. So here they're looking at pancreatic cancer, uh, and they're looking at what happens in terms of monocyte recruitment uh, in a clinical setting, and what's the role of the CCL2, CCR2 axis, the same sort of thing that we were looking at, except in pancreatic cancer. They're able to stratify based on what the monocyte content is, even in the blood, uh, for how well these pancreatic cancer patients are doing. And it turns out that if you have fewer monocytes being recruited into the blood, th the prediction is that you would do better, okay? Once again, you don't want this large monocyte cellularity. These are actually going to, uh, at least in theory, propagate the cancer. Probably the even more impressive uh, uh, split in terms of this is if they now uh, stratify this based on CD8 and CCL2. So here they're looking at CD8 low and CCL2 high patients versus CD8 high and CCL2 low. And to me, that's a very impressive split uh, on a prognostic uh, uh, indicator for, for uh, pancreatic cancer. So this is turning out to be uh, both neat for prognosis and, and possibly neat for intervention. Um, from this group, uh, actually, we've gotten a recent recruit, so I'll, I'll put out a, a quick plug here. This was a, done at WashU, and, and Linehan's group is now, I believe, at Rochester. Um, so we recruited in Dr. Ivy Wilkinson-Ryan. She was a Dartmouth medical student, um, went off and did her uh, whatever medical people do, uh, residencies and whatnot, came back here. and. Um, uh, she's a new assistant professor of OBGYN, and uh, she got a, a, a recent award and, and, uh, um, from the Gynecologic Oncology Foundation, and if you take a look at that title, you can imagine that we're all excited about it, right? So this is a role for CCR2 blockade in combination with chemotherapy and ovarian cancer. So now she's trying to leverage some of the stuff that they were looking at in that pancreatic system into this ovarian cancer system, and it's really everything we were hoping for. Can we now combine these CCR2 therapies with conventional chemotherapy and see if we can get some leverage out of this. So, yeah. So, if you can see these differences in the blood. Yeah. So, is there a kind of an egress chemokine to get out of the bone marrow? And is that, if so, is that a targetable? It's a good question. People have looked into GMCSF for that one, and uh, I think there's mixed stories on that one. Uh, we've never personally looked at the, the blood monocytes in terms of being an indicator. Um, uh, from what I from what I've seen in the literature anyway, GMCSF would be the probably the best candidate for that, and you now know pretty much everything I know on that one. Um, it's it's not apparently obvious that CCL2 would be the egress migrate migratory factor from the bone marrow to the blood. Do yeah. you also use the site ratio in the setting? I mean, you showed you just percent but <coughs> yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I don't believe that they looked at the granulocytic, uh, uh, I guess, population or the ratio of those within this study anyway. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I also, I also don't know within pancreatic cancer sort of what the perceived role of the granulocytic uh, MDSC would be either. We are at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. <laughs> Okay, so part two. Uh, uh, these 
the leukocytes we're looking at express the CCR2. Uh, CCR2 functions in recruitment to the ovarian tumor site. Um, and, and really, uh, we've got uh, in, an integral part of this uh, recruitment. And if we can uh, block this, and this is really where IV studies are going, we're looking forward to this. Um, you know, once again, maybe we can inhibit, tum inhibit tumor progression. So in terms of actual mechanisms that we're looking at, why does leukocyte depletion actually inhibit tumor progression? What's the underlying mechanisms? And we've got an insight into this one, and we absolutely don't have the whole story. But I'll bring you back to something that we saw early on, which is this flip-flop in cytokines. And this is, it looks like I got blocked out, but this is IL-10, okay? And so when we deplete, we lose that IL-10 expression within the ascites. Um, and that really caught our attention. Like I said, there had already been some work done on IL-10 and ovarian cancer, um, and, and we had sort of a, a smoking gun on this. So IL-10 is generally regarded as immunosuppressive. It's, it's uh, uh, present in, in lots of different diseases and lots of different cancers. Um, uh, typically, it will inhibit uh, pro-inflammatory pro factors. Uh, Mary Jo Turk can probably tell you more than I can about the role of IL-10 with T-regulatory cells. Um, but they, it's uh, involved in the induction of Tregs, and Tregs themselves can produce IL-10 as well. Uh, we do see high levels of IL-10 in ovarian cancer ascites, and this is associated with a poor clinical prognosis. And, and this is uh, some of the, the work that Wei Ping Zhu and others have added really to this field. However, what the exact roles of IL-10 is uh, are playing in these tumors, what the role is that it is playing in these tumors is, is not uh, particularly well known. We sort of know it as a general immunosuppressive cytokine, but how it's actually working within this environment uh, is not well understood. So here's a really simplistic model that we started to interrogate. So we've got our tumor cells. Uh, we know that through whatever tumor-derived factors, and we actually don't have a terrific read on this, uh, we are getting the recruitment uh, and generation of these myeloid-derived suppressor cells. These can block uh, the T cell activity, uh, which would then uh, you know, release the T cell activity upon the tumor. So that, you know, a really uh, simplistic circular argument. Um, and really, where does IL-10 fit into this scheme, okay? So we had the advantage of using some IL-10 reporter mice, so uh, courtesy of, of Casey Weaver. These are the 10-bit mice, um, and they express Thi-11 on their surface uh, if they're ex expressing IL-10. So it's Thi-11 under the IL-10 promoter, okay? So I'll show you in a second, but uh, as these cells start producing IL-10, they will become Thi-1 positive. Does that, does that make sense? A few heads, not, okay, good. Um, and we, know, we already know that there's a bunch of uh, potential IL-10 producers in a variety of tumors. And uh, this is Kevin Hart's work, and it did a, a really fairly straightforward assay asking for, this is the Thi-11, I guess it got blocked out down there, sorry about that, but naive peritoneum, ovarian tumor ascites, we're looking at IL-10 as a virtue of Thi-1 on here, and CD11B. And what you're seeing here is that, not surprisingly, we don't have a whole lot of IL-10 being produced in a naive peritoneum, and in our ascites, all of these cells are essentially CD11B. The IL-10 is being produced within the ascites by the CD11B compartment, very consistent with the, the MDSCs that we're looking at. When we look to see sort of what other contributors could be, we know that, uh, so in, in Ed Osherwood's viral system, uh, he sees IL-10 produced by T cells, so we took a look at that. Um, and we do see a few CD8 cells, we see a few CD4 cells. These are not the predominant uh, cellular populations within the ascites, and really, uh, you know, you see a few specs up here, but these aren't the predominant IL-10 producers either. It really appears to be on the MDSC side. <laughs> 
one of the neat things that came of this, and I, without getting into the crazy details, that there seems to be a sequential induction of IL-10 uh, amongst a couple of, of phenotypically different populations. So here's IL-10 uh, versus a marker that we use, CX3CR1. Uh, that's used to divide some of the myeloid subsets. Um, it's a really useful marker for differentiating some of the subsets of, of macrophages and monocytes. It's really sort of what it's classically used for. But what you're really seeing here is that early on in tumor progression, it's the CX3CR1 negative cells, and these are the CD11 B positive cells, that are producing this IL-10. When we get later into tumor progression, then we get a shift over. And now we're shifting over from these negative, this negative population cells producing it. They're still making a little bit. But now the predominant IL-10 producers are the CX3CR1 positive cells. So we've got a temporal shift uh, in who's making the IL-10. And it really allowed us to now focus in on some of these negative cells and what they're contributing to shaping this tumor microenvironment. And we're going to leverage this thigh one expression of IL-10 in just a second. So here's uh, sort of that simplistic model again. We see that IL-10. We think it's being made by the MDSC. We want to know how it's contributing. Um, we've got a notion that the IL-10 contribute towards the suppression of the T cells. But now we're also asking, can the IL-10 actually act upon the suppressor cells themselves? Is it helping to sh shape uh, the suppressive environment enforced by the, the suppressor cells? Do we sort of have a circular argument going here? So uh, I'd like to thank Ed Osherwood for holding our hands on making chimeric mice. Um, and so Kevin Hart took. Uh, naive black six mice, lethally irradiated them, and uh, reconstituted them with a mix, a pretty much a 50-50 mix of 10 receptor knockout bone marrow and wild type bone marrow that should be responsive to IL-10. So these mice now harbor both, both sets of cells. We let these cells grow back in, and now we've got mice that we can identify um, which populations of these cells come from that mouse by these congenic markers, CD45-1 or CD45-2, useful for flow cytometry or isolation of the cells. So here's the neat thing that came out of this. So we can now take both sets of cells from the same mouse. We know they are coming from exactly the same environment. And now we're doing our T-cell suppression assay again. So here's our CD3 stimulation. We're adding the suppressor cells from the same mouse. Um, uh, and either of the 10 receptor knockout variety or of the wild type variety. As you've seen before, the wild type variety are very suppressive uh, compared to our positive control here. The 10 receptor knockout MDSCs do not do a good job of suppressing the T cells. So it appears that you need the IL-10 signaling to these MDSCs in order to confer their suppressive capacity. So this was a neat experiment, um, uh, and once again, thanks to Ed for, for steering us on this one. This is really some of the early evidence that IL-10 now has basically a, um, a, a, a feedback loop now back into that myeloid subset. We do have a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? So these are the cells that are making the IL-10, and it's also affecting them, and we haven't yet broken that loop. We would love to know what of these tumor drive factors now shapes the cells to start uh, this chicken and egg problem. We don't know that yet. But we took a couple of attempts to uh, understand sort of what the contribution of IL-10 is to the system, um, and, and really can we specifically identify um, where, where some inflection points in the system are. So once again, a fairly brute force strategy here. Um, we're going to uh, put in, we didn't want to use IL-10 knockout mice. Um, they are prone to autoimmunity. Uh, once again, if you take out a, a nice suppressive cytokine, uh, it's going to drive an inflammatory pathology. So we didn't want those mice having a head start on already having a, a pathology. So in this case, we're going to use a uh, IL-10 receptor blocking antibody. And we're just going to give it injections of that and, and block the IL-10 receptor. 
So a very similar strategy that we used before for the depletion. And here's what we see. So if we block the IL-10 receptor within the ovarian tumor uh, uh, microenvironment, we're giving these IP injections. Uh, we see a nice drop in the CCL2, MCP1. Uh, we see a drop in the IL-10. And we see an increase now in the pro-inflammatory cytokines, including IL-12. So once again, just blocking the IL-10 receptor uh, predominantly on these myeloid cells now allows us to flip-flop uh, the profile of the environment. Dr. Turk? Um, so the CCL2 goes down. Presumably, then, that's not coming from the ovarian tumor cells. That's coming from the macrophages. Very likely. And that was your original presumption, is that... We know that they both can make it. Yeah. Um, our original presumption was that a lot of the CCL2 was being made by the tumor cells. We do know that they can make that. Yeah. Uh, it appears there's multiple contributors here. Okay. Um, this could be a function both of decreased tumor burden, but also blocking of the myeloid function, and we haven't, we haven't broken those two apart formally. Do the tumor cells have any IL-10 receptors? Uh, not that we know of. Okay. We, 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 tried measuring that we didn't see any, but I'm not going to say none. Good question. Other questions? Okay. Uh, once again, the neat thing about this, if we block the IL-10, we can restore some of the T-cell function. So here we're looking at CD8 cells producing interferon gamma that we're taking from the tumor microenvironment. Um, and so now we get an increase uh, in the activity of the T-cells upon blockade of this IL-10 receptor. Um, to be fair, we haven't parsed out whether this is a direct effect on the T cells themselves or on the myeloid. Uh, it's downstream of blocking the IL-10 on the myeloid compartment, but we were happy to see that by shifting the environment, we can now resuscitate the T cell activity. We took a second approach at this. Um, oh, here's, here's the end of the first one, which impedes tumor progression. It gave us a very interesting curve. So here we are treating uh, with our anti-IL-10 receptor antibody. Um, the treated mice now have quite a prolonged survival compared to an IgG control. One of the interesting things about this curve is it appears to be a little bit bimodal. So the ones that go down, even treated, go down very similarly to the IgG controls, and then a subset of them really last for quite a while. Um, and we, we don't fully understand this. We don't know if we've hit a, a tipping point here where some of the mice are going to go down early and we can prolong those that are responsive. Um, and it's something that we're trying to understand. We, we don't know what yet what an indicator would be for which, apart from survival itself, which mice are now going to be very responsive and which aren't. Was that repetitive um, treatment? It was. It was. But al along the lines uh, of what Dr. Weir is asking here, uh, we took a second attempt. We used a slightly different methodology. And really, we wanted to know if we just hit this early, can we now uh, change the game? And so uh, this was a neat strategy, also done by Kevin Hart. And we took advantage of this thigh one uh, marker on the IL-10 producing cells. And so uh, Kevin was fairly creative with this one. And what he did is he said, I'm only going to take out the IL-10 producing cells. I'm not even going to take out all the leukocytes. <clears throat> so we can use that thigh one antibody as a depleter. Okay? We're going we're to deplete only the thigh one positive cells using antibody-mediated depletion. And so we're not even taking out the entire leukocyte population. We're just taking out the ones by virtue of producing IL-10 that are expressing Phi-1 on their surface. And so here's what you see. So here's our CX3CR1 uh, marker once again. Here's our IL-10 reporter. And if we uh, basically just put an anti-Phi-1-1 antibody and inject that in the peritoneum, we're going to lose these Phi-1 positive cells. Um, works surprisingly well. We're only going to do this twice. 
We're going to do this on days 7 and 10, and this is coming, I think, I think to Chuck's question. So we're going to do this twice, post-tumor inoculation. And we really wanted, this has been an inquiry of, uh, early on, I, I was uh, mentioning that there was sort of a CX3, CR1 negative population and a CX3, CR1 positive population. And as you can see, we're preferentially hitting this negative population early on. Um, and we, we had an interest in what this negative population was doing. This was not a well-described population uh, within ovarian ascites. So in this context, uh, even hitting them twice early on, just taking out the, the IL-10 producing cells, we now gain those mice about three weeks of survival. Okay? It's not a cure, um, but we're buying them a, a fair bit of time for only treating them twice early on and hitting a very specific population of cells. So we thought that was really neat, and it really speaks to this early IL-10 production by this population of cells now helping to shape the environment. Um, even though it's not a cure, it obviously has something of a durable effect. Here these mice are now living out to somewhere between 80 and 100 days uh, after treating them on days 7 and 10. So it does impact what we're seeing downstream. So sort of the, the, uh, the how we put this into uh, context, we've got uh, our myeloid-derived suppressor cells within the tumor microenvironment. Um, they have their effects on the T cells. We know that they're very suppressive. Uh, IL-10 and arginase both seem to be involved in this. We would dearly like to know sort of the relationship between IL-10 and arginase, and they might be acting independently and they might not. We don't fully understand that yet. One of the neat things that came of this was this IL-10 feedback loop on the myeloid cells themselves, and that really seems to be a, a guiding principle in how they're shaping the, the suppressive <laughs> microenvironment. If we take out this IL-10, we can now take out the suppressive factor. We can, it seems we can liberate the T cells to now uh, get after the tumor. Okay. So in conclusion, um, uh, we're really interested in these myeloid-derived suppressor cells. Uh, they seem to be predominant producers of IL-10, at least in, in ovarian cancer. Uh, that's not necessarily true in all uh, inflammatory contexts. Um, uh, the MDC are capable of responding to the IL-10 in the tumor, and, and we're thinking about this hard in terms of generation of functional MDSC and, and how can we intervene there. Um, we now know the blockade of IL-10 signaling uh, uh, is, has some efficacy in terms of blocking tumor progression, uh, and it does require T cells, okay? So whether that IL-10 is acting directly on the T cells or acting on the myeloid cells, at the end of the day, uh, we need those T cells, and particularly CDA T cells now, to have this effect. Um, and interesting to us, and I didn't really get into the, the uh, details here, but we collaborated with Mary Jo Turk's lab, and the IL-10 signaling uh, through the myeloid cells also seems to shape the phenotype of the tumor infiltrating cells, so we appreciate her collaboration on that one. So here's the ugly. We got through the good, the bad. Um, this is from a few years back, but these are, these are the two horses that really drove this uh, research. This is Pete Bach, Kevin Hart. Uh, Pete went on to do a postdoc at MIT. He's now uh, in consulting, making more, model, more money than all of us put together um, down in Boston. And Kevin is finishing up his postdoc at the NIH and, and doing a, a swimmingly good job there. So uh, thanks to them, kudos to them for uh, doing most of the work on this. Uh, just a few acknowledgments. Uh, here's the people within our lab who uh, overcome their leadership to succeed. Um, Ed's lab and Mary Jo's lab have been very instrumental along with a couple of their graduate students. Uh, Mike Malloy is still floating around here. Um, Kate Burns gone on to do uh, a nice postdoc at UPenn. Um, thanks to a bunch of our uh, collaborative labs, uh, Bill Green, Charles Simon, Steve Firing, Jose Conejo, Leslie DeMars was instrumental in us getting some of the early human tumor samples. Uh, got some mice from a couple of uh, external labs. Thanks to the funding, and I, I see Gene uh, Brown running around here, thanks to the Prouty. Um, 
uh, ACS has been good to us, thanks to training grants and uh, the Immunology Cobra. So with that, I'd be happy to take any questions. Please. Do you have any uh, evidence in human patients with this relevance of IR10 and uh, the other and the FDIC? Pardon? Do you have any kind of data from the human or from these patients? Yeah. So we've interrogated the, the human ascites samples in terms of uh, basically the consistent markers that we see, but we have not played hard in the human ascites game uh, in terms of functional responses, if that's what you're asking. Do you know how platinum-based drugs affect the cytokine environment? What, what based drugs? Platinum-based drugs in the vein. Yeah, so they are interesting, right? So uh, that's our, our frontline drugs on this, and people are also starting to look at uh, targeted drugs. So, you know, VEGF inhibitors are now being levied against this. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the rule of thumb right now is that these things are, are, particularly when we're catching these tumors a little bit later in the game, they seem to be effective at buying people time, but they're not terrifically effective at curing them. Um, and that seems to be true for the VEGF inhibitors as well. So clearly we're looking, uh, you know, for better ways. In terms of shifting the actual cytokine environment, um, we do see shifts. And so when people have looked at this in terms of both ascites and, and uh, uh, even more commonly um, uh, uh, blood uh, samples in terms of what happens before and after therapy. The blood samples are a little less, uh, you know, easy to interpret. Um, obviously, we don't see all of the uh, cytokines that we see within the peritoneal microenvironment. That said, they do see shifts in the cytokine profile, and particularly, you get a better inflammatory response after a, a you know a platinum-based chemo drug. Um, that said, it's probably not terribly surprising. Uh, you're both uh, you know taking out a lot of the tumor, and this is usually in conjunction with debulking. So sometimes these things are a little bit hard to split off from each other. Um, but you know, you're also doing a lot of uh, uh, you know chemotherapy-driven damage down there. We would expect a solid inflammatory response. In a sense, you know, that's what we're trying to drive within a, a limited containment. So you know, Jose and other people have looked at the context of what happens if we can flip-flop these MDSCs into a more pro-inflammatory state. And and there seems to be some leverage gained from those sorts of attempts. It's not something we've harnessed well yet. Um, but, uh, you know, that's definitely on the radar. Craig? I know you're very interested in this seahorse instrument and the fact that the arginine and arginase uh, also might play a role with mTOR, that pathway as a sensor. Do you think there's some sort of metabolic shift uh, with, with, uh, in these cells that... Uh, Can I get away with just saying yes? Um, yeah, I, th I think there is, and so, you know, it's a good question. Um, there's, uh, you know, a, a, a wealth of papers, uh, both, you know, probably 40 years ago and now re-emerging in terms of Warburg effects and, and changes in metabolism now within the tumor microenvironment. Um, I think it's a really neat area, and, you know, let's get that seahorse on the ground here and see what we can see. Um, I, you know, yes, I do, I do think that there's changes in metabolism. Um, in terms of the arginase story itself, um, it's hard. We, we don't really know uh, really how well arginase, why arginase is working like it does. And in Bill Green's system, he's got the, the INOS dependence. Um, 
We initially thought that, you know, we had a couple of hypotheses that either we should be able to restore the system with an addition of excess arginine and not let that be a limiting factor. And we know what the metabolic byproducts of the arginine metabolism from arginase are. And so we had the notion that if we put those in, they would then be inhibitory. And we got no love on either. So there's still something sort of black boxy about how this is working, and I don't have a solid answer for you. That said, this ability to block arginase and another system's INOS and now release this T cell activity is a party trick that lots of labs can play. And you know, we would dearly love to have some better insights into that. Does SRA expression correlate with iodine production? It does not. It does not. So uh, if there's robust SRA expression on naive perineal macrophages, and the SR expression doesn't change a whole lot even in the you know crazy high IL-10 producing tumor microenvironment. Do I see, David? So will you eliminate the IL-10 the early IL-10 producers and I think you showed you get uh, increased survival at that point? Yeah. So what's happening, I mean, presumably you're enhancing the T-cell response at that point, but why aren't they able to completely eliminate the tumor? Is it just a tumor burden or are the T-cells Again, being suppressed over the time point. Say, say that again. What was the last half of that? Sorry. So, I mean, what's going on that the T cells can't fully eliminate the, the tumors? Um, so, you're getting increased survival, but not complete remission of those. Uh, is IL-10 going to do that, or is there another suppressive mechanism involved? IL-10 is definitely coming back. We know. Uh, you know, gains. And we see some of that. Um, we do see that IL-10 does come back, um, and, and that's not surprising. We do see basically a re-infiltration and a re-expression of IL-10 later in the system. And really, I, I don't think that we expect to cure the mice, and I, I guess I'm not surprised that the T-cells aren't completely wiping out the, the tumor population there. Um, it really speaks to, and this is, uh, it really speaks to what happens if you deplete that IL-10 early on. Um, even temporarily, and, and part of our interest there was understanding the contributions of this sort of undescribed cellular population that wasn't expressing CX3, CR1 like we expected it to. Um, and so I guess that was uh, one of our motivations for trying to understand just in that time period why that happened. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Chuck? There's no question that ovaries are a very rich source of estradiol and progesterone and that a number of tumors are hormone-dependent. Is there any evidence that the ovary, that ovarian cancer itself has a hormone-dependent component to it? Uh, there certainly is in people. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to relate that to our mouse model. I don't, our mouse model is not, as far as I know, dependent upon that. So it's nothing that we've tested in a mouse model. Uh, there is definitely correlations between uh, ovarian cancer and the uh, hormone status of women. So uh, women who are on the pill, for instance, have a much, much lower risk of ovarian cancer. Um, uh, conversely, there's both uh, that and, and, and genetics that we do know something about uh, in terms of, you know, BRCA is going to predispose women to a much higher risk of ovarian cancer. In your, in your model system, do you use male or female mice? We use female mice, but I will... But I will say, we've, we've grown these tumors in male mice. They grow just fine. Um, and, and so I don't know if we've ever done a, a true rigorous side-by-side, -side, but it, probably better than anecdotally, I can, I can say that these tumors will grow just fine in male mice. We do consistently use females to, 
keep that playing field level, though. Yeah. So, have you ever tried uh, anti-L10 uh, with uh, checkpoint regular antibody, like PDL1 and CDL4? We have not, but uh, uh, Wei Zhu has been interested in those sorts of combinations, and uh, you do gain advantage by. You can't leave yet. I'm just getting the interesting part. So, she's in my lap. Um, <laughs> you, you do get advantage from, from combining these and using both. Um, once again, it doesn't appear to be a, uh, you know, a, a full cure, um, at least in the models that, that have been used. But yeah, you can combine these. Any last questions? There's always got to be one. People have looked at that, and I, you know, I know it's elevated in some other types of cancers. I, Todd or Mary Jo, in your particular systems, have you guys looked at that specifically? I don't. I'm going to put you on the. What do you got? I mean, I think IL-10 does play a immunosuppressive role in melanoma, but we haven't. Yeah, I, I'm less familiar with those systems, and I, I don't know the specific numbers on that. Last questions? All right, thank you for coming. Thank <laughs> you.